Well, hello again. If you would turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 17. Mark 10, 17. If you're using the Pew Bibles, that should be on page 822. We've been making our way through this Gospel, and this morning we come to the end of what some have called Act 2, the second middle section of the Gospel of Mark, before we end at the the last section of the book. Uh, Mark is a book that starts kind of geographically. So the first number of chapters, eight and a half chapters or so, are pictured kind of around Galilee. And this middle section has been on the way. And then the last section will be in and around Jerusalem as Jesus drives towards the cross. Well, this morning we'll go ahead and read uh, chapter 10, verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Uh, Wait, 10, 17. Nope, that was last week. 32 through the end of the chapter. My notes are not correct. All right, 1032 through the end of the chapter. Let's try this again. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is the word of the Lord. If you were to Google search the phrase servant leadership, you will very likely find a website called greenleaf.org, and it will explain that while servant leadership is a timeless concept, the phrase servant leadership was coined by Robert K. Greenleaf in an essay published in 1970. In that essay, Greenleaf writes about servant leader being one who begins by a desire to serve, not to lead, and how they primarily focus on the growth and well-being of people and communities to which they belong. While traditional leadership generally involves the accumulation and exercise of power, 
by which one at the top of the pyramid exercises that power. Servant leadership is different. The servant leader shares power and puts the needs of others first and helps people develop and perform as highly as possible. Greenleaf mentioned that this concept of servant leadership is old as time, but he neglected to give any credit to Jesus, which we will see in our passage this morning. He truly is the servant leader. Uh, Greenleaf, again, was honest enough to acknowledge this, but what's interesting is while servant leadership has many pros, and I I was in leadership in the business world for years, and so I've read the books and been to the the conferences, and there's much to commend it, uh, it is not without its weaknesses, its holes, as it were. Perhaps one of the best critiques I've heard from a Christian perspective is by theologian David Wells in his book, No Place for Truth, uh, subtitled, or Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology?, Uh, It is a very punchy read if you want a critique of 20th century evangelicalism. Uh, I recommend it, but it's not for the faint of heart. Well, at one point, he gets to this critique of servant leadership, and he says this, in effect, the servant leadership idea can turn leaders into politicians and pollsters. Uh, The best pollster makes the best leader, he writes, for all ideas must find their sanction, even their legitimacy in the audience. See what he's saying? There's a danger of the servant leader doesn't really lead at all. They just follow the whims of the crowd. Uh, No longer do they lead based off a a firm commitment to a standard or a principle. Instead, they lead wherever the wind blows. And Wells goes on to address this very thing. He puts it punchily. He says, it is more flattering to talk of servant leadership, but contemporary servant leaders are typically individuals without any ideas of their own people whose convictions shift with the popular opinion to which they assiduously attune themselves, people who bow to the wishes of the body from whom their direction and standing derive. They lead by holding aloft moist fingers so as to sense the change in the wind. In all this, they show themselves to be very different indeed from the one who embodied true servanthood and what it was intended to be. Never once did he tailor his teaching to what he judged the popular reception of it would be. So while there's much truth in the concept of servant leadership, what we will see today is Jesus as the true and first servant leader, the creator of all, the sustainer of all, who came to lead as the true suffering servant, which we read. He was never swayed by the naysayers and the critics. He was never allowed to be drifted off of course. He was unwavering, or as Isaiah will go on to say, he set his face like a flint. So we will continue this morning with this trek of Jesus towards Jerusalem. See, the people were convinced they needed a leader, but they wanted a leader of their own making. Uh, They wanted a leader who was going to throw off Roman rule, which is what they perceived to be their biggest problem. Had Jesus been a modern servant leader, he would have been a zealot seeking to throw off Rome. But that was not the case for him. So with this all in mind, is this context of Jesus being the true servant leader, here's the argument from the passage this morning. True Christian disciples refuse any attempt at using Jesus for personal pursuits of power and prestige. Instead, they seek to follow in the way of Jesus, the true servant leader. One more time. True Christian disciples refuse any attempt at using Jesus for personal pursuits of power or prestige. Instead, they seek to follow in the way of Jesus, the true servant leader. The name of the sermon is Continued Blindness, and we'll walk through it in these three points. The third passion prediction, came to serve and then blind Bartimaeus. 
So first, the third passion prediction. Look again at verses 32 through 34. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Well, this section begins with Jesus demonstrating this leadership quality. Quite literally, he's leading the way up to Jerusalem. And up is a very important point here. Uh, Up is very correct. The journey from Jericho, where we will find out that he is leaving uh, towards the end of this little narrative, is something like 20 miles, climbing 3,500 feet in elevation. Uh, James Edwards notes, helpfully, it was not only up in elevation, though. The path to Jerusalem meant that he would also be lifted up on the cross, as John's gospel puts it. Edwards continues, up is the symbolic way of speaking of the suffering that awaits Jesus in Jerusalem and the ardor of true discipleship. Despite the grave ascent, Jesus is not lagging behind like a prisoner going to the gallows. He's leading the way, like Isaiah's servant who set his face like a flint. See, behind Jesus' lead, we hear these two groups of people. First, the disciples, they're awed or they're amazed, and then there's another group, it seems, that they're afraid, it says. Uh, What is going on here? Well, given the flow of the passage, these emotions seem to be flowing from the messianic expectation. Uh, This section will end with blind Bartimaeus crying out, Son of David! And we'll come back to that in a while. But in other words, they see him heading to Jerusalem, and they assume he's going to be the kind of leader they want, their version of a servant leader, that he will show up and throw off Rome, that war is inevitable. The disciples marvel, this is our king, he's ready to go conquer. And the others are scared because they're nervous about the war ahead. And yet, they are still following. See, a common theme in Mark is the portrayal of Jesus as a man of action. Over and over again, quite literally, it reads immediately, immediately. It's always Jesus on the move. And the first eight chapters of this gospel was just displaying again and again Jesus' radical, unlimited, unbounded authority over demons and disease. And so when here Jesus is up and heading up, resolutely moving towards Jerusalem, you can see why they would have said, oh, this is Messiah, and now it's going down. (laughs) The war is about to begin. That victory could only come through a massive war of throwing off Rome. And they knew what was at stake because Rome was famous for their Pax Romana, their forced peace, as it were. Well, at some point in the journey... On this way up to Jerusalem, Jesus takes aside the disciples, the twelve. And for the third time in the second act of Mark, he explains exactly what he is leading towards, not at all what they expect. It's not a kingly victory throwing off Rome. It's a path of suffering and death. Oh, Jesus most certainly is the leader, but he leads towards the laying down of his own life, the suffering servant passage, which we read earlier. This is the longest of the three passion predictions, as they are called. And in it, he reveals the role that the Jewish leaders will first play in handing him over, and then the Gentiles will play in his suffering at their hands of his own people and then of foreigners. See, he will not merely be put to death, but it's a degrading process of mockery, being spit on, flogged, and finally killed. And yet, death will not have the last word. Perhaps if you're visiting this morning and maybe you're not a Christian, this first section of our passage is really a summarizing of the gospel in many ways. 
You see, all people know that they have certain needs. The, the Jews knew they had a need, and they believed that their greatest need was the freedom from Rome. And so they're looking for a leader who would throw off the Roman rule. At a physical level, we all have needs, food and clothing and shelter, uh, and we have relational needs. You see, those who follow Jesus believe that their understanding of what they need is best, but Jesus will not be swayed. I wonder how this looks in your life. I wonder if maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, and you would say, my life is pretty good, but if I just had this one thing or could get rid of this one thing, my life would be wonderful. Well, I, I think it's important to remind ourselves that the idea of wonderful assumes a certain worldview. I mean, what does wonderful mean in a world of cosmic accidents, in a raw, naturalistic world of, of matter and time grinding away? Now, maybe you might hold or, or be persuaded by this naturalistic idea of the world of just time and chance grinding on. You would probably agree with one New York Times uh, article commentator responding to an article about the meaning of life. This commentator put it very well, I thought, speaking about, well, what exactly is meaning in life? This is what they wrote. When the Hubble Space Telescope pointed to a black spot in the sky the size of an eraser head for a week, it found 30,000 galaxies over 13 billion years old, with many trillions of stars and many more trillions of inferred planets. So how significant are you? You are not a unique snowflake. You are not special. You are just another piece of decaying matter on the compost pile of this world. Nothing of who you are and what you will do in the short time you are here will matter. Everything short of that realization is vanity. So, celebrate life in every moment, admire its wonders, and love without reservation. This is the carpe diem approach to life. Seize the day. But it's deeply inconsistent. If we are just decomposing matter on the compost pile of this world, then what does it mean to love exactly? It is to have other decomposing affections for other decomposing matter? It doesn't quite work, does it? Uh, this is why one philosopher uh, snarkily commented on this raw naturalistic worldview. Man descended from apes. Therefore, we must love one another. It doesn't actually work that way. So friend, I would just say, if, if maybe you're here today and you're exploring Christianity, uh, or maybe you've been tempted by or have believed in naturalism, uh, I believe in love because I believe in the worldview that can support it. Uh, only a world created by a loving God who created all these people in his image to love him and each other can make sense of having a wonderful life and loving others. Here in Mark 10, Jesus is telling them in advance of how God would love this world, that the Son of God himself would enter into time. He would not bend to popular opinion, but to God's plan. In the gospel, according to John, Jesus puts it this way, that no one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord, and he will say very much to that effect later on in this section as well. So friends, if you're not a Christian, I, I hope you see your need for Jesus. I, I hope you see that he is the only way who is able to explain life in a way that gets you out of the decaying matter on the compost pile of this universe. If you have questions, I'd love to speak with you more after these things. But so far we've seen Jesus' determined leading towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. He will not bend. But then we come to our second point came to serve. Let's look at verses 35 through 45. 
Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, well, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. <clears throat> there is perhaps no other scene or passage in the Bible which so vividly demonstrates the incredible blindedness by our priorities that human beings can have. Jesus, on his way marching to Jerusalem, declares to the disciples that he is going to the cross, he's going to suffer and die, and they ignore it and immediately say, so which one of us gets to sit on your right and your left, Jesus? It is just a stunning scene how you can be that daft, how you can be so blinded by your desires and your personal will and ignoring the leadership who is heading this way. Jesus has resolutely set his face, tells them explicitly what's going to happen. Hey, Jesus, we want to be, we want to be important too. That's what's taking place in the scene. It is remarkable. And commentators note how the first readers of Mark would have caught the irony here far quicker than we would have. Because they say, Jesus, we want to be on your right and your left. Well, there were those on his right and his left when Jesus came into Jerusalem. It was two thieves who were hanging naked on two crosses next to Jesus. Not on gilded thrones, but also experiencing the judgment, which is why he mentions the cup and the baptism. The cup is routinely a symbol used throughout the scriptures of the cup of judgment. And then baptism can also have this idea of being overwhelmed uh, we Baptists love to talk about how we immerse, we overwhelm you with water. Well, that's very much the idea, is this overwhelming of suffering that was going to come. And Jesus says to them, can you take the cup and the baptism? Uh, you can see their, their tunnel vision in the response. Yep, we sure can. Good night. That's how confident they are. Yes, we certainly can, Jesus. Uh, to, to me, the first thing that came to mind as I was thinking about these two was this idea for parents and grandparents. You've certainly seen this in your children. Uh, I call it willful ignorance. Uh, you know, there's ignorance that you have because your, things are new, but then there's willful ignorance. It's when your child does something the exact opposite of what you just instructed them to do. And then they reply, I didn't know, or I forgot. Well, in one sense, I think they're being honest. It's just that their world is so small at that age They've had so few life experiences outside of their little world. They're so self-consumed, they can only think about themselves. So it's like they just don't even hear you. It's like the, you know, what is it, Charlie Brown? Wah, 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 wah. That, that's all they hear. They don't actually hear what you're saying, even though you can say it to them, and two minutes later, they do the exact opposite. I forgot. You forgot in two minutes? Well, that is what James and John here demonstrate. But they also demonstrate it's not a problem only with kids. <laughs> It isn't a problem with us as well. You see, selfishness and the desire for getting our way is common to everyone. 
It started back in the fall when the serpent tempted Eve to choose her way rather than God's. Ron helpfully walked us through that temptation this morning in Sunday school class. One of the ways I like to explain the fall is with the word autonomous. That comes from two Greek words, autonomos, self-law. And every Christian every day is set up with this very real choice. God's law or autonomos, my law. Which will it be? You see, the serpent looked at her and said, that was God's law, but you're pretty smart. You're kind of cute. You can figure this out for yourself. You have autonomy. You have self-law. See, that childlike self-centeredness is endemic to all humans who disregard God's word for personal preferences, declaring, I want my way no matter what. And these men, after having spent three years with Jesus, having watched his ministry, listened to him many times, this is the third time in this gospel, five times in Matthew's gospel, have hearing him declare what is about to happen to him, they completely miss it. Why? Because they can only see Jesus through the lens they have constructed of what they want him to be. They have an understanding of servant leadership, and they're trying to blow the wind of this leader to what they desire. They want him to be, as the words of the song, their own personal Jesus, someone who cares. Someone who cares for how they want things done. Someone who will lead the way they want to be led. James Edwards, again, summarizes their actions well. He says, the brothers hope to honor Jesus while honoring themselves. How easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest or worse. Self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship. See, Jesus explains they do not understand what they are asking. And then again, he asks, can you, can you drink of this cup and have this baptism? Oh, we can. Well, in one sense, yes. I mean, they, they both would suffer. James would, would be martyred. John, uh, if tradition is true, was boiled in oil and exiled to Patmos. So yes, they certainly would have some suffering. But of course, there's another sense in which there is no chance that they can drink that cup or experience that baptism. Why? Because that's the whole message of the gospel. We don't have within us the ability to pay for our sins against an eternal God. So then Jesus here, after telling you do not get to make that choice. It's up to God. I am the true servant leader, which means I lead according to God's will. I go God's way. It's not his own will who sits at his left and right. No, God determines that. So a true servant leader in the Christian realm is one who leads according to God's plan, not swayed by the opinions of the crowd. As I said at the opening, uh, this is this beautiful model you get of Jesus in this section of refusing to bend Crowds can often be like James and John here. They only care about themselves. So much so, they're blinded to what God is doing right in front of them, even when he declares what he's about to do. True servant leadership, then, is first and foremost anchored to God's word and God's plan, no matter what comes against it. Well, of course, the ten hear about this, and they're indignant because they want to be important too. Uh, They're not mad over these two who have just completely cast off Jesus Ah, no, they're indignant because why didn't we think of that first? So Jesus brings the self-centered discipleships together to teach them about what true greatness and true leadership are. He explains that their approach to leadership is like the Gentiles. You seek to use power and positions or even brute force to have your way. And Jesus says, that's not the way it's to be with you. That's not how disciples are to live and lead. A Christian, true leadership is a willingness to serve. But 
It is the abdication of leading according to what we think is best. It's following God's plan. Jesus is this perfect example, as we've said. Now, maybe you're catching this idea that Jesus brings up. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. This is why we read earlier from Isaiah 52 and 53, the servant passages. Uh, I, I wish we had the time to go through. Mark, of all the Gospels, is the one who latches on to Isaiah the most. Uh, the theme in Isaiah is this second exodus, which pictures, picks up the themes of the exodus, and it retells the story, as it were, of the exodus. And Isaiah is promising this future glorious exodus who will come. How will it come? Well, not the way they expect. It will come through this servant who will come. And you get four servant songs in the middle of the book of Isaiah, with this being the last one. Uh, just listen again to some of the language here and see how this will connect to what Jesus is saying of laying his life down as a ransom for many. Isaiah 53, 4 through 7. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, friends, the Son of Man came to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many, to be the one who bears our griefs and sorrows, to be the one who's pierced and crushed for our sins and iniquities, to be the one who takes the punishment that we deserved. So I want you to see, with Isaiah 53 clearly in the background here of Mark's thinking, the phrase that Jesus uses here at the end of this section that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to be the true servant, and to give his life as a ransom for many is critically important. Uh, sometimes we can read that Isaiah 53 and miss the, the beginning. That's why Chip started in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. That's part of that last servant song. And in that song, Isaiah 52, 15 says something so critical to understand in this passage in Mark. He says, he will sprinkle many nations. That word sprinkle is, uh, was like a technical term in the Jewish mindset and world. It was the term used of the offerings and the sprinkling of blood. In particular, in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would go and take the blood of a bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And he would go and take the blood of a goat and sprinkle it. The high priest that one day went into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice and receive atonement or covering. You see, Jews understood the atonement was for them as a clearly divined, defined people. It wasn't for everybody. The day of atonement was for Jews. That, that's what it was. It's very specific. It's definite. Atonement in the Old Testament is always definite. It's always specific. It's only ever an atonement for God's people. So what is stunning when you get to the servant song in Isaiah 52, 15, is that this servant will come and he will sprinkle many nations. He gives his life as a ransom, not for Jews only, but for people from every tongue and tribe and nation. See, this definiteness of Jesus' work is strengthened by that next phrase he uses, a ransom for many. Here's another rather technical term in the Jewish mind. Because the same word for ransom is used for redeeming Israel, buying them back. You know, to redeem something, by definition, is this for that. I, I buy it back. 
So that language of redemption always carries a definiteness about it. Uh, you, you might use, know this language to redeem a mortgage. Uh, or if you were to go to a pawn shop and hawk a watch, later you redeem, you pay this for that. It's this for that. So Jesus says, as the true servant of God, he lays his life down for his people, redeeming his people. But it's for many nations, from every tongue and tribe and nation. This is why the gospel is oftentimes summarized in the two words, substitutionary atonement. Uh, Now, the first word, substitution, is pretty commonplace, substitution, substituting this for that. Atonement is the covering over of their sins, appeasing the wrath of God. The good news is that God can either look at your life or he can look at Jesus' life as the substitute in your place. The good news is that God can either pour out his judgment on you or he pours out his judgment on Jesus as the substitute in your place. And so as with redemption and as with sprinkling and atonement, this category of substitution is definite. No cook in their right mind is making cookies and says, I'm going to substitute two cups of sugar for everything in the whole pantry. That's ridiculous. You would never do that. What is a substitute? Two cups of sugar for one cup of fake sugar. It's this for that. And since substitution necessarily is this for that, this means is you cannot be partially in. Jesus cannot partially cover your sin. He cannot partially take the judgment for you. It is either all Jesus or none of him. There's no way of adding a little Jesus in to be okay with God. He either redeems you entirely with his substitutionary life and death, or you have no part in him. As this as we've seen in this act two of Mark, Jesus' call to discipleship is radical. It is whole life shaping. He said, taking up our cross and dying to what we think is best, following Jesus. Friends, as we said, true Christian discipleship refuses any attempt of using Jesus for our personal pursuits of power and prestige. Instead, true disciples follow Jesus as the true servant leader. But if we're honest, we fail at this all the time. Even as those redeemed, those bought back from sin and death and hell, those made alive by the Spirit and given faith, we fail at this often. Hence the reason we need to be careful about mocking the blindness and the continued blindness of the disciples too much. Because if we're honest, we're just like them. We can read what Jesus has done for us and turn around and demand we get our own way. See, all Christians are commanded to take up their crosses and follow Jesus, and yet we so often and so easily try to find a way around that. That's why we read earlier from 1 John 8 and 9, after confessing our sin together corporately in that prayer, We're reminded that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christians, this tension will continue to exist until we go into glory. On the one hand, we are commanded to this unwavering commitment to follow Jesus, to relentlessly lay down our plans and our desires and take up our cross and follow him. And yet... It is also the realization that we will never arrive, that we will continually fail in this task. This has been painted so beautifully in Puritan Richard Sibb's book, The Bruised Reed. Uh, In that book, he addresses this tension 
And the bruised reed comes from Matthew 12, 20, where Jesus is the one who a bruised reed he shall not break. And what, what Sibs does in this book is he just milks that verse for every possible bit of gospel truth. And he writes of how Christians need to bruise themselves, meaning to wage war against their sin. And then he references Jesus saying that, you know, what Jesus is saying, we saw a couple weeks ago in Mark, about cutting off a hand that leads you into sin or plucking out an eye. That's what he means by bruising ourselves, bruising our sin. And he, he writes that in order for us to be the kinds of bruised reeds that Jesus will not break, that we need to see the depths of our sin against our Savior. He writes that our hearts, we need to work our hearts into such a grief as will make sin more odious unto us than punishment. And then he continues... If we lay this for a ground, that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us, then it is better to go bruised to heaven than sound to hell. Therefore, let us not take off ourselves too soon, nor pull off the plaster before the cure is wrought, but keep ourselves under this work till sin be the sourest and Christ the sweetest of all things. The Christian life is continual work of seeing the depths of our sin. And selfishness, as James, John, and the Ten are displaying here. It is a pressing on in that work of taking up our cross, of bruising our sin, of seeing it for what it is, that for which Jesus suffered and died. So we must never despair of fighting sin. But friends, what are we to make of the way we, like the disciples, demand for Jesus' plans to be like ours? We tend to think that we know best who are those individuals in your life that you confess sin to? Uh, who are those, as 1 John tells us, we do this to one another? See, the gospel call is for people to confess and repent. Oh, well, first to God, yes, but to one another. Well, who are those people in your life that you're able to do that with? You see, Christian, please hear me clearly. If you're not regularly confessing sin to others, there's a problem. Almost assuredly, it means that we have a very slight view of our sinfulness which means we also have a slight view of Jesus' cross work. If we live as though our sins are small, we minimize Jesus' laying down his life for his people as a ransom. And hence, there's no such thing as a Christian who does not continue on in confessing sin to others, to walking out their discipleship. Well, we've seen the disciples try to use Jesus for their own purposes, and yet we've seen Jesus pressing on and leading according to God's plan. And now we come to our last point Blind Bartimaeus. Uh, look at verses 46 through 52. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus, son of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came down to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Well, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the middle section of Mark is bracketed by two healings of blind men. The first one was the very tactile healing where Jesus spits in the guy's eyes and touches him. And he says, can you see anything? Well, it looks like trees are walking around. 
And so he touches him again, and then finally he can see clearly. And at that time, I said that this whole middle section of Mark is just showing the disciples are like the half-healed man. They're walking around seeing, but as trees walking around. That's why their continued blindness remains on display in this whole section, even to the point of Jesus saying, I'm going to suffer and die and rise again. And they go, when do we get to sit on your right and left? That's their continued blindness. Well, here, this middle section of Mark closes off with a healing the way Jesus has healed most people in the Gospel of Mark, with a word. As we said, Jesus doesn't need to touch somebody to heal them. He can speak a word, and that's precisely what he does here. And the reason he does that is because now, at the end of this middle section of Mark's Gospel, three times Jesus has told us he's heading to the cross. And the picture is this. Once he goes to the cross, the healing will be complete. Meaning, you can only truly know who Jesus is via the way of the cross. That's what Mark is doing with this gospel here. And he shows us this blind Bartimaeus on the road. It's interesting. This is the only one in the synoptic gospels healed by Jesus whose name is mentioned. Only here do we learn of this man's name. And there's a question that perhaps that's because maybe the community, the church that Mark was a part of, knew him. And maybe this is part of his testimony of how he came to faith. We'll think about it in a minute as well. Well, either way, this blind man sees way better than the disciples do. Peter declared Jesus to be the Son of God and then immediately gets cursed, uh, as we found out earlier. But here, blind Bartimaeus cries out to him with a title not used elsewhere in Mark's gospel, Son of David. Well, to this point in Mark's gospel. Son of David. That's what he declares him to be. Remember, he can't see. He's only heard about him. But on hearing, he trusts that this is the promised Son of David. Now, that title, Son of David, first appears in the first century B.C., and it referred to a warrior king who was going to show up and punish sin, very much like the disciples anticipated, wanting to be on his side, awed that he's going up, and the crowd fearful of this war he's going to wage. But the irony is that while James and John want the military seats of power next to the warrior king, blind Bartimaeus sees far better than his sight lets on, because he says, Son of David, have mercy on me not looking for a warrior king. He's looking to trust in Jesus as the true son of David. Well, when Jesus finally calls to Bartimaeus, he jumps up and comes to him. And Jesus says to him the exact same thing he said to James and John. What do you want me to do for you? So Bartimaeus is a foil to James and John. Whereas James and John have seen him and just heard him declare that he's going to the cross and they're still clueless. This guy sees so much more clearly, understands at least far better. And so he says, I want to see. And Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. Uh, that word for healed there can speak of both physical or spiritual healing. And, and I think it's right to say that for Bartimaeus, it is both. Uh, that this is both his conversion and also his physical healing. So Jesus, as it were, he draws Bartimaeus out to make this public profession of faith. Now, now, did you catch the crowd? They were telling him to be quiet, be quiet. Why? Well, because Bartimaeus was introduced as the one begging on the side of the road. So perhaps he, he can't see anything. He hears this crowd going by and he starts shouting out, son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone's thinking, well, mercy can be alms. So they're thinking he just wants money. And yet he cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd's blown him off. But Jesus says, no, come to me. So he comes to him and Jesus mercies him, has has grace on him, saves him, heals him, as it were. And by doing so, though, instead of just saying the word as he's done with other healings, he makes him come front and center. Uh, so I think it's an interesting kind of picture here. It's kind of his public declaration of faith. 
And I thought this would be a good side note uh, to address something. I've had a number of questions pop up about a comment I make regarding baptism being a person's public profession of faith and being into church membership. At the simplest level, what I'm saying there is just Acts 2.41. Acts 2.41 says that those who received his word were baptized and added that day about 3,000 souls. But what were they added to? Well, in the context of Acts 2, they were added to the 120 who began the chapter praying in the upper room. So in other words, baptism is always into, in addition to, another group, because a church is the one who has the authority to baptize. Baptism cannot be disconnected from being added. Now, there are some frontline missionary examples, like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, but other than that, baptism is always being added in the book of Acts. And moreover, baptism is that public profession of faith. Uh, That's why throughout the book of Acts, what must I do to be saved? Their response is, repent and be baptized. Uh, It was completely unthinkable to separate those two things in the Bible. This is why Peter can actually say, baptism saves you. Now, he's not saying baptism actually saves you. What he's saying is that there was no understanding of separating those things. Salvation in the New Testament is to repent and believe and be baptized and joined to a local body where you walk out your discipleship. Uh, So I thought it was interesting with this public profession of faith here. Obviously, this is before the church, so uh, there's no church for him to be joined into. But if that's why his name is used, again, the only time in the Synoptic Gospels, perhaps this is that church's way of hearing, oh, that's how old blind Bartimaeus, that was his conversion story. I think that very well could be a possibility. We don't know for for certain. Either way, true discipleship sees Jesus not as a means to some end we prefer, as a means for money, as a means for power or position. No, it's to see him for who he is, the end and goal of life. Son of David, have mercy on me. Well, then the section ends as it began, with Jesus leading the way unflinchingly towards Jerusalem and the cross. But now there's one more disciple, because you see how it ends? And he followed Jesus along the road, healed, mercied by God, and following him. Not to take over Rome, because clearly that's not how he used Son of David. He used Son of David as the merciful one. Well, I opened with the story of Robert Greenleaf and how he coined this idea of servant leadership. Well, in the 1970s, like I said, but I didn't mention where he got the idea. This was a fascinating story. He got the idea from reading a short novel where a godlike being in disguise came down and accompanied a large group on a journey. While this godlike being accompanies this large group on this journey, he does all their menial chores and he keeps their spirits up while guiding them through the way. Close, but no cigar. From this book, though, Greenleaf laid out this list of characteristics of what he thought a servant leader should be, and one of them was that the leader is the one who provides the team with what they need to be successful. But again, that's the whole reason Jesus came, as the promised suffering servant. Because no amount of leading and guiding and cajoling can fix what is broken with humanity. The biblical story is one of God sending leaders again and again and again to his people who reject them. We'll see this, Lord willing, in Mark 12 and the parable of the tenant farmers. God's people were not lost due to a failure of God to send leaders, but because the people's desire for God to serve as a means to some other end that they desired. By rejecting God's leaders, the people were rejecting God's design for them, which is why in Isaiah 52, 13, God's servant is one who would act wisely and be high and lifted up, exalted, 
Those are the same words used in the vision of God's throne in Isaiah 6. High and lifted up, signaling that this servant was a little bit more than meets the eye. Well, between Isaiah's announcement that this servant will be high and lifted up in Isaiah 52, 13, and that he will sprinkle many nations in 52, 15, we read that verse, Isaiah 52, 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. See, Jesus most assuredly is God, the high and lifted up one. But rather than clinging to his power and prestige, he came as a servant, allowing even his human form to be marred to subhuman realities. See, we needed far more than a leader who could help us achieve success. We needed one to bear the penalties for our sin, even our sin of following Jesus for our own purposes. Friends, true Christian discipleship refuses any attempt at using Jesus for personal pursuits of power and prestige. Instead, true disciples seek to follow Jesus, the servant leader. And as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, may we be those who continue pressing on in repenting and confessing our attempts at molding Jesus into our image and instead follow Bartimaeus' example. Son of David, have mercy on me. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Jesus, the true servant leader, who was never swayed by crowds, who always pressed on to seek to do your will. And we ask that you would cause us as a people to seek to do your will also. We pray that you would lead us and cause us to be those who see our need to follow you that you are faithful, that you are good, and you are the true servant leader. Pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.